Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now, with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair was three sixty nine, now two ninety nine, and the IKEA Plus three sixty five nine piece cookware set was one twenty nine ninety nine, now eighty nine ninety nine, and hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at IKEA USA dot com today. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Between the Lines the podcast that deciphers the handwriting, unfolds faded pages, and dips into the details of diaries, logbooks, and letters written during this same week, there or thereabouts, in 1943, some 80 years ago. Let's start with a quick recap of the situation. The battle for Sicily is still being hard fought, but if it wasn't clear before Operation Husky, it's now all too obvious to most that Italy has finally shot its bolt in this war. Mussolini is a shadow of his former strutting self, but agrees to see Hitler in person on the 19th of July. They meet at Feltre in northern Italy, where the Führer is in full ranting mood and Il Duce hardly gets a word in edgeways. It's the last straw for the fascist Grand Council, and on the 25th of July they vote in favour of Mussolini's resignation. The following day, the Italian king, Victor Emmanuel III, insists Mussolini step down. After 21 years, the fascist regime is over, and Il Duce arrested. Italy's exit from the war is now inching ever closer. The Allied Army Group commander, General Sir Harold Alexander, becomes the first military governor of Sicily this week, and one of his first acts is to denounce and proclaim the dissolution of all fascist organisations. There's also plenty still going on in the South Pacific this week. The battle for Bareco on New Georgia, for example. But on the home front, all of the headlines are about the Italian campaign. We'll check in with Via Hodgson on the home front first, where she's keeping up to date with her diary in Notting Hill Gate. Let's find out what she's been picking up from the radio and the national newspapers. Sunday, 18th of July. During a broadcast in Copenhagen, the Danes began singing the Norwegian national anthem. At first, the Germans did not twig what was going on. Then it was hastily switched off. But the Danes had got it in well. Captain Hansen, our nice Norwegian sea captain, called to see us in the office. 
He had just heard via Sweden that his wife had died in Stavanger during his absence. She was quite well when he left Norway. He was very sad. Still people grumble at the food. Most of us are thankful that we have had enough, difficult as it is to obtain. No bread queues. All due to the merchant seamen who bring it here. It is worth noting that twice we should have been starved, once in the 1940 spring and again in 1941, if the Americans had not come to our rescue. This was announced in Parliament. I am still worried about General de Gaulle. The Americans seem to have made a pact with Girard, who has stipulated that he should command a European expedition. It is obvious to all in North Africa that the great dynamic character is de Gaulle. It will require a strong man to clean up France, but de Gaulle does not make friends easily, it seems. We wait every hour for news from Sicily. Wonderful how well the men have got on. Commander Kimmin's account of the landing was rich in the details we want to know. There seems to be some fighting. The Sicilians crowd around and are as pleased as Punch to have their photo taken. One story goes that two American parachutists were taken prisoner. Then the Sicilians decided to reverse the situation and gave themselves up to the two paratroops. But Sicily is not Italy. Naples is having a terrible pounding. Poor things. It is their own fault. Churchill and Roosevelt have called on them to give up fighting for Mussolini. I wonder what his feelings in the Palazzo Venezia are now. Have just been talking with a merchant seaman who was on a hospital ship which did seven journeys to Dunkirk. It nearly finished him. He had been on one of the Jersey Channel steamers before the war. Bad incident at East Grinstead Cinema today. Direct hit. Many people and children killed. Worst we have had for some time. Last week, we found Major General Oscar Griswold struggling with deteriorating conditions in the South Pacific and bemoaning the loose ends of what seemed like entirely unsatisfactory administration everywhere he went. What's more, until recently, the Japanese ground forces had avoided a large coordinated offensive, preferring to harry the Americans at night in much smaller local attacks. But the threat is still there. And when the 161st Infantry arrive at Baraulu Island this week, they immediately suffer heavy casualties. There's no time to waste. Griswold's diary entries are short and to the point, as he and his men are preparing for imminent action. 17th through 23rd July 1943 Reorganising relief of tired units moving in 37th Division, etc. General Order No. 1 for the operation issued July 22nd. 161st Infantry, 25th Division, moving up. On the 23rd, sentry on duty over my tent was shot during the night by a nervous visiting officer from USFISPA. Thought the sentry was a prowling Jap. Sentry seriously wounded. Most unfortunate. 24th July, 1943. Moving up for D-Day tomorrow. I face my first test in battle leadership tomorrow. I bow my head in humility and prayer, may have what it takes to properly lead my troops. If God is with us, we will win the victory. Time to join RSM Jack Ward again. There are only a couple of notes in his diary this week, as the 56th Heavy Regiment is still recovering from action in May, 
and intent on letting the men recuperate. But one thing he does mention is the Yankee Long Tom. As a piece of heavy metal, the Long Tom had its moments. It could fire a 100-pound shell, or 45 kilos, over a maximum practical range of about 14 miles, or 23 kilometres in modern money. That said, the gun's accuracy and barrel was limited to a life of probably no more than 1,500 rounds, and there was no such thing as rapid fire either. 14 men at a time would be working to load the M1 155mm Long Tom to give it its full designation, but could only fire around 40 rounds per hour. Here's Jack. 19th of July. Today's Monday. Work day. I've completed my work. Large job today. Two suits of KDs and a pair of longs besides the whites. Washed, dried and folded in four hours. What about that, Mr Ward? <laughs> Received an air letter from Michael this morning and numbers 39 and 40 from Mum yesterday. Still doing well in Sicily. Went to a regimental sports meeting last night. A good show. Also some drinks after. Stinking hot still. Although there is a breeze. 23rd of July. Held up in Sicily on the east side but doing well in the West. Received an air letter from Mum yesterday and some sea mail. Very hot. No signs of moving yet. Receiving new equipment. Yankee Long Toms. Time to return to Syria now. Corporal Harry Wilson is attached to three Corps signals at HQ Palestine Command. The exercises they've been running have more or less come to a close, so it's very much business as usual at the moment. But everyone has to stay fit and ready to move at any moment. So that includes doing plenty of PT. Saturday 17th, a strenuous route march this morning along the foothills. Everyone in Three Corps took part, including Colonel Whitby Wilkinson. He led the way. I was told the Padre and the MO were following up behind and the latter was making frequent use of his first aid equipment. Sunday 18th, a leave party to Beirut was organised today and my name was drawn out of the hat. My joy was uncontainable. Left at 9am at the car park in Beirut, we were told, go to where you like, but be back at 6.30 sharp. There was only one place for me, the university. Arrived in time for lunch, Barber was there. I hung around for a while, making good use of the access to various insights of a literary nature, and then the evening came round. All too soon, six o'clock, and no sooner had I entered the restaurant than I saw Yanina. Dressed as on the first day, with her dark hair gathered back from her white forehead. Yanina, I said, we've only got 15 minutes to eat our dinner. Could you get it for us quickly? But come back and talk again before we go. I eat quickly, but Brian was as slow as a tortoise. At the end of the second course, Yanina returned. I'd like you to do me a favour, I began. Oh, replied Yanina with deliberate sarcasm. I suppose you want another cup of coffee. And then, at the look of my face, she burst out laughing. Yanina, I said, can I write to you when I go away? She seemed surprised as if the thought of writing had not occurred to her. Yes, if you want to, she said, but my writing is not so good. I told her not to worry about idiom. And as we sped home across the mountains where the heights and valleys were dark and melancholy, something told me that I had seen her for the last time. The dismal wind cried in my ears, Yanina, Yanina. Tuesday 20th. Back to reality. The 8th Army are three miles from Koh and the conquest of Sicily is in sight. 
Rome has been bombed for the first time. Warning leaflets were dropped over the city before the raid. Friday 23rd. Resistance in Sicily is crumbling. New sergeants for Cypher have arrived from Cairo and shifts have been rearranged to accommodate them. Sergeant Hunt is our bugbear. He fights with everyone, himself included. and We junior NCOs dread working for him. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from Between the Lines in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Out to sea next. Let's find out what's happening on HMS Warspite. The Warspite was one of five Queen Elizabeth-type battleships completed in 1915 and armed to the teeth, or should that be gunnels, with an impressive range of artillery. Eight breech-loading 15-inch guns in four twin-gun turrets, 14 6-inch guns, two quick-firing 3-inch ACAT guns, two octuple 2-pounder pom-poms, 50 calibre machine guns on our main turrets, and of course, four 21-inch torpedo tubes, two on each broadside. After her refit and the journey south to the Med, Captain Bertie Packer is now on a moment's notice, ready to use them all. Saturday the 17th of July. This was a great day for us and the old war spite luck held. Slipped at 8am from the Grand Harbour and with Valiant moved round to Marsaschlock. On the way in, Valiant fouled the baffle, damned luck. At 11.30, all had orders to come to one third hour's notice. Then, at 12.15, had orders to sail at 12 and to bombard the north half of Catania from 1830 to 1900 and be out of it not a minute later than 1900. We all raised steam like mad and shoved off the destroyers, weighed our eight shackles of cables, etc., and were clear of the harbour by 13.15. If we averaged 22 knots, we could not get to Catania until 1900. Too late. We must do more. Left Valiant behind. She cannot steam as fast as Warspite. Off we went, doing eight revs more than our maximum and making 23 knots. Gradually, this rose to 23 and a half. We roared along and suddenly our steering gear stuck with 20 degrees of helm and we went round in a savage circle. Lost 10 minutes, but if all went well, could still open fire at 18.45 for 15 minutes. At 18.43 we were passing through the open fire position at 16 knots and opened fire. A great mass of smoke and dust rose up out of the town right on the spot. Fired 56 rounds 15 inch with a salvo every minute, moving each salvo into a different square like a chessboard, so that we systematically plastered the whole area and firing the last round at 19.02. Eclipse on our starboard sighted a submarine. We increased to 20 knots and Eclipse fired great patterns of depth charges. 
Then petard on the port side sighted one did the same. Then the shore batteries, three-inch, opened fire on the Faulkner, and port screen destroyers replied. Then three Fokker Wolf 190s came skimming along our starboard quarter, and our starboard four-inch pom-poms let rip with all they'd got, and the effing wolves went off faster than ever. At 1902, odd rounds from the shore battery began to fall fairly close to us, but we had completed our shoot, and we were off home. The town was solid smoke and dust. I took several photos, but doubt their value. Anyhow, it was a smart, neat bit of work beautifully carried out, and our R. Bissett was excellent. I took several photos, but doubt their value. Anyhow, it was a smart, neat bit of work beautifully carried out, and our R. Bissett was excellent, and did not put a foot wrong in any way, and handled his force calmly and determinedly. The real heroes are in the engine room, who made it possible, against our most optimistic hopes, to get there in time. Just. And only just. Tuesday, 20th of July. Anchored at Marserschlock at two and three-eighth hours' notice. Small respite for warspite. Grand Harbour area raided last night from 03.30 to 04.30, which was a nuisance and kept us out of bed. It was no doubt meant as a reprisal for our big daylight raid on Rome. The invasion of Sicily is progressing well, but from all accounts, Catania still not captured. If you're wondering what's happened to Lieutenant Heinz Nocker, by the way, don't worry. He's been on medical leave for a couple of weeks. Still nursing a bullet wound to his hand, he'll be back in the cockpit soon enough. Let's close this week by checking in with our other airman, Flight Lieutenant David Nairn Blythe, and his mother, Julia Blythe. Here's David. 22nd July. Dear Ma, I was pleased to receive yet another air graph full of news from home. I have a wizard little photograph album now showing a picture story of most of the things I've done in the places I've visited since I left home. Until I went to Aunt Jean's last time, I didn't have a camera of my own, but a number of the other boys did. Uncle Bill gave Johnny and I a camera each. I think I've mentioned him before, Ma. You see, they had three, and they knew I'd love one. Typical of their generosity. Spools aren't really difficult to procure here, and so I'll get one off in the post to you soon. Not much more to say today, Ma still recovering from all those exams. As always, looking forward to getting more news from you, about Dad, about Joan, about Ian, in fact, news about everyone at home. All my love now, your loving David. 21st of July, dear David, I've received page one of your letter from Buffalo and an air graph of 9th of July. He would laugh at Dad. The first thing he says when he comes in each morning is, any letters? You know, in your exams, I felt sure the marks for personal assessment will put you up and not down as you thought. I also know Mr MacDonald would be proud of you. I'm glad you have a good chum in Johnny. Is he English? I hadn't heard you speak of him before you went to Canada. Well, David, I don't know how you stand up to the heat. I'm sure I should melt if I were at Aunt Jean's. It was lovely of Bill to give both you and your new friend each a camera. Just what you always wanted. I'm looking forward to seeing all your pictures when you return home. Try and send on a snap in your new uniform, please. Tommy was over on Sunday and we had a nice seat in the garden. He told us that he and Fee have become engaged. 
if everything goes as planned, they will be married on the 31st of July, and June will be the bridesmaid. They're just waiting for his parents to say yes, and if that goes ahead, then they will have a quiet wedding. Don't send any congratulations until you have more definite news. Dad thinks they are both crazy and should wait, but Faye's parents are quite in favour of it, apparently. Dad is still working away. Joan is looking forward to her holidays in August. Ian wanted her to go for a week to his home in Oxford, but we shall see. Gran is also glad to hear you're doing well, and, as always, we all send you our love. The war is going well for us now. All the best of luck and love. Ma. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We do hope you found a little insight and were briefly entertained as we were reading. Between the Lines. Between the Lines is a We Have Ways production. Julia Mar Blythe is read by Ruth Sillers. David Blythe is read by Matthew Malthouse. Oscar Griswold is read by Michael Lyons. Chester Hansen is read by Lance Fuller. Via Hodgson is read by Rachel Holland. Heinz Knocker is read by Lucas Veschler. Bertie Packer is read by Paul Waggett. Jack Ward is read by Adam Jarrell. Harry Wilson is read by Joel Emery. Narration is by James Holland and Al Murray. Editing by John Gill and Joey McCarthy. Written and produced by Merrin Walters. The executive producer is Tony Pastor. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration.
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.